50 years today, so I'm really excited. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't get to sleep until about 3.30 in the morning. I just laid there because I was so excited about uh, celebrating 60 years. To me, it's a big deal. But I wanted to start out by, uh, by actually telling you guys kind of a funny story. This week, we got a visit from PITT, P-I-T-T. It's an acronym. They actually showed up at our doorstep. It was a couple of... I don't know, ninth or 10th graders, uh, maybe an 11th grader. Uh, it, it means paranormal investigative tactical team. And they, so they, they showed up, <laughs> they showed up at our, at our door. And, um, yeah, this guy, uh, who's, who's just, he's kind of quirky. Uh, so I was like, okay, this, this is kind of a joke. I, I, and I'm not in on it, but you know, okay, I'm going to go along with it and just, just play. And, uh, he, he says, hi, I'm here from Pitt. And he hands me this business card, which is just a piece of paper with Pitt scribbled on the front with a little picture of, I don't know, a ghost or something. And on the back was, it looked like an old homework assignment or something. So I, I you know, I didn't want to take his one and only business card. So I handed it back to him. I figure, you know, that these guys are, are totally just, here for, for fun. But they said, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of an old looking church. How old is it? I said, well, you know, the building is, um, about a hundred years old, but the, the, the church has been, uh, in business here for, for 60 years. Um, but as far as I know, yeah, the building's about, about a hundred years old. And he said, okay, that's great. Um, do you have any, uh, any supernatural stories that you could share with me? Any stories of supernatural activity in your church? And I thought, now, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, I had to think for a minute because it's, it's a little bit ambiguous, right? I mean, uh, there are a lot of ways that you can interpret that word supernatural. So I said, um, do you mean paranormal? Uh, and he said, yeah, we're talking about paranormal. Anything paranormal. Have you ever seen anything uh, or, or heard anything that you can't explain? And I thought... Uh, okay, no, there, there's nothing that doesn't have an obvious explanation that I've ever seen at this church, an obvious explanation being the key phrase. Uh, I won't tell you exactly how the rest of the conversation went. It was, it was very funny. They ended up kind of running away um, in, in a hurry, but uh, that's okay. Um, today <laughs> today we're, we're celebrating 60 years of, of ministry uh, in this building at this uh, for this church, this is a, a ministry that has withstood the tests of time, and the only way that a church can last that long is if there is an abundance of supernatural activity going on and, and even the scriptures attest to that truth. The psalmist put it this way, he said in Psalm chapter one twenty seven verse one unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it are laboring in vain. In other words, if God isn't behind it, then you can work and work and work, and you can put the best uh, you know, church growth programs into, in existence into effect. You can get the most persuasive speakers. But if the Lord doesn't build the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's the type of supernatural Activity that this church has definitely seen an abundance of over the course of 60 years. We've seen the Lord's hand. We've seen the Lord's blessing. If the Lord had not blessed and provided the people and the means necessary for this ministry to continue, we would have closed up shop a long time ago, honestly. We wouldn't be here today. Most of us know that there have been times throughout the history of this church, there have been times when the odds seemed so stacked against 
this church continuing in its ministry, but somehow it has survived for 60 years. And I say somehow, but I think we all know that it's really no mystery how a little church in a suburb of Seattle survives through trials and time, is it? It's not really a mystery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we're really celebrating you. We're here to honor you, Lord, and the work that you've done in this ministry, in this church, in this very building. And so we pray, Lord, that as we turn to your word, that we would also turn our hearts fully to you, our hearts and minds, that we would be transformed by your word, that we'd have a, a deeper understanding of you, a deeper understanding of your word, and a deeper understanding, Lord, of, uh, of how it applies to us, our purpose, in light of the passage that we'll be studying today. Be glorified as we study your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we, uh, as we continue our, our Rediscovering Christmas series, this is not necessarily a traditional type of uh, Christmas series, but what we're doing is we're looking at the reasons for the season. We're looking at the reasons that Jesus uh, took on flesh, stepped out of eternity, humbled himself, becoming the God-man, who was both fully God and simultaneously fully man. He had this unique dual nature. And the first reason that we covered, that Jesus came and stepped out of eternity, the first reason is what? Does anybody remember what we covered last week? Anybody? Anybody pop quiz? You weren't expecting it, were you? He came to bring life. He came to bring life in a world where only death otherwise would have existed. So the next reason that we'll be looking at is that Jesus came to build his church, to establish and build his church. And he started with 12 guys, 12 men, who were probably not the most likely candidates. They were all from various walks of life. Some of them were educated, some were not. I mean, if you're going to start a church, what are you going to start with? I mean, they have books on this stuff, you know, you know that you can order, how to plant a church. And it's like, oh, you, you want to start with the right kinds of people. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. He takes some people who were educated, some of them weren't, some of them were well-spoken, some of them weren't, some of them were outgoing and outspoken, some of them were so introverted and so silent, they're, they're almost obscure in, uh, in the text, But at one point in his earthly ministry, he took his 12 disciples deep, deep into Gentile territory to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is about 120 miles from Jerusalem in the northern region of Palestine. And this was a very pluralistic place. Pluralistic meaning there were all these different gods, all these different religions existed all in this this one place and they were just kind of all crammed together and uh, all these gods. There's a history of all this this, uh, idol worship really in this region. This was uh, something of an epicenter for idolatry. The Baals had been worshipped in this region. The Greek god Pan had shrines that were built in his honor in this region. Herod the Great had constructed a temple of worship there in honor of Caesar Augustus. So you see, this was a place where there were all these these idols, all these false gods who were being worshipped. And Jesus brings them smack dab into the middle of that. And as they're surrounded by all these idols, all these shrines constructed for false gods, 
we find one of the most famous interactions that Jesus had with his disciples. In, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 17, this is what we read. We read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus knew, especially in a pluralistic place like this, where there were a lot of hearts turned away from God. And Jesus knew that in a place like this, and from their experiences, what they had seen, the people that they had interacted with, he knew that people had various opinions or ideas about his true identity. And people still do, by the way. You'll hear people say, you know, I, I like Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. Or, you know, Jesus is, is totally cool. He was, he was a great teacher. Or he was, uh, he was a prophet. Right? But Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And when he asks that, the word you is plural. So he's, he's asking not just one person. He's asking all of his disciples, who do you say that I am? He's asking them a very pointed and very direct question. And I imagine that there was a bit of discomfort here because there was so much confusion about who he really was. But as the leader of the disciples, not that he was necessarily elected as the leader, but his outspokenness often caused him to lead when nobody else would, Simon Bar-Jonah, or, or Simon, son of Jonah, whatever your, uh, your Bible says, that's what it means, it means son of Jonah. Si- Simon, son of Jonah, is the one who blurts out the answer first. He's the one, as usual, you would almost expect it, to just blurt out the first thing that comes to his mind, and he nailed it. He got this one correct. He couldn't have been more correct. If, if 100% is the best you can do, he, he got 100% on this question. And Jesus' response is very interesting. It says and reveals quite a bit. He doesn't say, man, Simon, you are so smart. He doesn't say, wow, Simon, that was, that was really perceptive of you. You have some good insight. It's not what he says. No, Jesus says, you're blessed. You're blessed. Not that you're well, not that he's dumb or anything, but he doesn't say it because he's smart. He doesn't say it because he's insightful. He's just blessed. He says, You're blessed, Simon Barjona, because this is a truth that you would only know if my Father in heaven revealed it to you. This had nothing to do with Peter. His, his understanding of this, his knowledge of this, had nothing to do with him. It had to do with the, with the Father's choice of revealing this truth to Peter. And so he was blessed. Now, Peter. Let's be honest, Peter had more than his share of of super, super embarrassing moments recorded in the Bible for us today. And that's one of the reasons that we love him, right? Because it's like, okay, if God can love somebody like Peter, I'm I'm pretty sure he can love somebody like me. I don't think I mess up as bad as Peter. Oh, well, I don't know. We're we're at least on, on a level plane here. But more than once, Peter stuck his foot in his mouth as he tried to, to maintain this image. 
Peter's always trying to maintain this image, this facade of being brave, of being courageous. When, uh, you know, we all know that when it came time to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, he denied Christ three times. Few would argue, however, that this is, at least up to this point, this is Peter's shining moment. It's at least his greatest moment until Pentecost when he preached before thousands of people. And and what happened when he did that? 3,000 people were added to the church. Who added 3,000 people to the church that day? Did Peter add 3,000 people to the church that day? Did 3,000 people become persuaded by logic and reason that day? No, we read that it was the Lord himself who added 3,000 to his church that day. So who builds the church? Who builds the church? If we take the testimony of Scripture seriously, how else do we interpret the fact that we find this phrase repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, and the Lord added, and the Lord added, and the Lord added, over and over and over. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But that's a ways off in the future at this point, as Peter answers in a way that shows that God the Father has revealed a great truth to him. And this was not a truth that Peter discovered on his own. He didn't seek for it. He didn't ask for it. It was just given to him by the Father. It's not a truth that anyone discovers on their own. Otherwise, Jesus would have said something like, You know, Peter, either you've got amazing observation skills, or you're super smart, or the Father revealed it to you, or or something. I'm not sure how you arrived at this this answer, but you're right. No, there's only one answer. There's only one explanation for why he knows this. And this is actually something of a surprising confession, because a lot of people had been confused about Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man. Even John the Baptist, he goes from declaring, Behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to, Are you the one who was to come, or are we supposed to be waiting for somebody else? A lot of people had a lot of confusion because they didn't have a thorough, complete understanding of the purpose and the mission of the Messiah. Most people thought that the Messiah was going to be a a, a leader, a king, who would free the Jews from Roman oppression. And almost nobody, almost nobody understood the Old Testament as having foretold that the Messiah was actually going to be God himself in the flesh. So given these major, major obstacles to human perception, to human reasoning, it's literally, literally supernatural, there's that word, it's literally supernatural for Peter to have responded in the way that he did. Peter is blessed because he's received the most important truth in the world from the Father. You and I are too, by the way. Because in our spiritual fallenness, In our sin nature, in our our spiritual brokenness, by nature, we are completely blind to the truths of God. By nature, we don't seek God. We We have no inclination in our natural state to look to God, to turn to God. By nature, we have no inclination to obey God. By nature, we have no desire to understand God. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open our spiritual eyes, we cannot see, we cannot understand, 
we cannot behold the beauty and the magnificence and the glory or the identity of Christ. So if you are asked, who is Jesus? And your answer is the same as Simon's. It's only because God has revealed it to you. And thus you are blessed. You are blessed beyond measure with the most important information on the planet. Now, while Simon Peter's response is one of the highlights of his life, and if you, know, if you were to put together a highlight reel of the Bible, you know, kind of like they do on SportsCenter, this would be on there, man. This would be one of, the, one of the highlights of Scripture. It's just as important that we see and understand the way that Jesus responds as it is to understand and grow in the truth that's been revealed to Simon Peter, and consequently it was revealed by him. So as we've seen, the first thing that Jesus does is inform Simon Peter that he's blessed, And that his response is rooted in God's sovereign will to reveal this truth to him. But that's just the first half of Jesus' response. He continues by giving Simon, who's been known only by as the name Simon up up until this point, he gives him a new name and he says this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. One of the richest, richest verses in scripture. He says, and I tell you, singular, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there are several terms that we're going to have to clarify and define here if we're going to start to get a grasp on exactly what Jesus is saying, what the implications of this statement are. But remember, first of all, that establishing and building his church is one of the many, many reasons that Jesus took on flesh and became just as human as you and I are. So what we're going to see is that Jesus tells us actually four very important truths, very important things about the church just in this one sentence. The first thing that I want to point out here is that Jesus is revealing that the church has a supernatural foundation. The church has a supernatural foundation. An entire religion, you could even call it a world empire if you want to, an entire religion has been built on the idea that Peter is the rock upon which the church would be built. But if we take a deeper look at the words that Jesus uses in the context, we see that Jesus himself is the foundation of the church. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that he will be the foundation of the church. Now, most people realize that the name Peter comes from the Greek word petros, which is the masculine form for the Greek word, which means uh, small stone or little rock. Uh, I've often wondered, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, I wonder if that's what they had in mind. I I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure who you could even ask about that. But that's what petros means. It means little stone or little rock. That's the name that Jesus has given to Simon, a little rock. But then Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, if you're going to build a church, do you want to do it on a little rock or on a big rock? Of course, on a big rock. The word that Jesus uses for rock here is slightly different. It's not petros. Instead of using that word, he uses the word petra, which refers to an enormous rock or a cliff or some type of, of gigantic you know, rock mountain. So Jesus is saying, basically, Peter, you're a little rock, but on this mountain of a rock, I'm going to build my church. And Jesus himself is that giant rock. See, these disciples have been raised 
in Jewish tradition. They'd been raised as Jewish men. They undoubtedly would have understood that the image of a large rock is symbolic of God throughout the Psalms. You find it all over the place in the Psalms, but you also find it in in the writings of Moses. You find it all over the Old Testament because a large rock, a a big rock, is a a safe place to hide. And God is a shelter. He's a place of rest and refuge. And so he is like a rock in that sense. The psalmist declared, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's Psalm chapter 18, verse 2. And then he goes on to say in Psalm 18, 46, he says, The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. You know, I bet I could write a song using that with, with just three chords. Yeah, I, I bet I could put a song together based on that verse. But yeah, if you're going to build a house, if you're going to build a, a, a church, what kind of foundation do you want? Do you want to build on a little rock or do you want to build on something that's as big as a mountain, just solid, immovable? Jesus is saying that he will be the supernatural foundation for the church that he would build. And at the same time, he's confirming Peter's response by referring to himself as a rock or the rock, thus implying that he is God in the flesh. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Peter is a little rock, a little stone, But Christ is the foundation. He's the cornerstone, the rock upon which the whole structure stands. He is the foundation. And Peter obviously didn't misunderstand what Jesus was saying. He didn't think that the church was going to be built on him. He didn't think that it was, uh, you know, the, the, the pressure was on him. He understood that it was being built upon Christ. He understood that the foundation of the church was supernatural. He wrote this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He said, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter was saying that the house was built of small stones that were living. He understood that he was one of those stones, one of those many stones. But he wasn't the foundation. He wasn't the rock that the building was resting on. The Lord himself would be the supernatural foundation. He would be the rock of the church. Nobody, not Peter, not Paul, nor Mary... Good name for a band. Hmm. Nobody would take Christ's place because nobody else, nobody else would be able to shoulder the weight of the church. Nobody else would be able to build it. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. He said, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So given how clear that is, I'm not sure 
how anybody thinks that Peter is the rock that the church will be built on, that he's the foundation of the church. It says it black and white here. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. This ministry has existed for 60 years because Jesus Christ himself is the foundation of it. We are about him. We are for him. He's the reason we exist. He's the reason that we gather every Sunday morning. That's the only reason to gather here, by the way. There's no other reason to gather other than for him. And the beautiful truth is that Jesus not only builds his church, but he also sustains it. He provides for it. He blesses it. He keeps it going. He keeps it breathing. Has he sustained this ministry? You better believe it. Absolutely he has. Wouldn't it be something in 40 years for me to come back as an 82-year-old to be able to celebrate 100 years of ministry at this church? As just a small and, and living stone who rests on Christ, the cornerstone. You see, this is an important point. This is a really important point because you can build the strongest and most impressive structure in the whole world. You can build the tallest buildings, the strongest building, whatever. But if it doesn't have a solid foundation, it's weak. It's vulnerable. It's possible to build wrongly on a good foundation. But if the foundation is wrong, if the foundation is soft, if the foundation is slanted or, or off in just a little bit, nothing else in the structure is strong. Nothing else in the structure can be truly right. In 2012, investigating authorities blamed the collapse of this huge five-story building in Ghana, in the Ghana capital, that killed at least nine people and trapped dozens of others. They blamed it on the fact that it just had a bad foundation. This huge building just toppled. And as they're investigating, oh, it, there's no other explanation. It just had a weak foundation. The foundation of the church will never give way like that. Because the foundation of the church is supernatural. Christ is the foundation of the church. That's the first thing that this text tells us. This one sentence tells us that Christ is the supernatural foundation. The second thing that Christ's words tell us about the church is that it has a supernatural certainty to it. See, there are some things that we can say, well, you know, I, I think I'm going to do this. I, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But we can't be certain about it because you don't know for sure that you're going to be alive in two minutes or five minutes or five hours or a week or a month or a year. So Jesus doesn't say, I'm, I'm going you know, to try to build my, my church and hopefully the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. There's no maybe about it. There's certainty because he's God and God can be certain about what God is certain about. There's no uncertainty in what Jesus says. There's not even a slight bit of uncertainty. Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, it doesn't matter if the Roman Empire decides to outlaw Christianity. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if the Roman Empire decides to feed Christians to lions. That's not going to stop what I'm doing. 
Jesus was going to build his church anyway. It doesn't matter if, if China or Russia or heavily populated, you know, heavily Islamic countries want to outlaw or destroy Christianity, want to persecute Christians to the ends of the earth. Jesus was going to build his church anyway. It doesn't even matter if the whole human race continues to rebel against God with all of its might. He will build his church. He was still going to build it, regardless of how oppressed the church might be, no matter how, per, uh, how persecuted Christians may be, no matter how blindly resistant to Christ the world may be, Christ was going to build his church, no matter what. And there was nothing that could stop it. It's certain. Did Jesus know that there would be opposition? Did Jesus know that there was going to be persecution? Of course he did. He warned his disciples about it. But was that going to have any bearing on the fact that the church was going to be built? None at all. No bearing at all on it. See, it's entirely possible to be an articulate, educated person who stands up before a group of people trying to win them over to a certain cause or a certain uh, you know, whatever, by using good reasoning and persuasive arguments. I mean, uh, why do you think that companies spend billions and billions and billions of dollars every year advertising their products? Why do you think that, that all these companies want to pay so much money to advertise during the Super Bowl? It's because people can be persuaded over to their product. They can become convinced to try their product. But it is absolutely and unequivocally impossible to use those tools to build the true church. No matter how articulate or well-spoken you are, no matter how logical we might be with our reasoning, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, it's not because I told you. It's not because another pastor told you. It's not because anybody told you. It's because the Lord himself is building his church, and he called you out of death and out of lifelessness, and into eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he promised here that he would keep doing that, and that there was nothing that would stand in his way. Nothing. The Greek word for church, by the way, it's two Greek words combined. When you put them together, it means called out ones. Who called you out of death and into life? I didn't. I, did. I can't. Jesus did. Because Jesus is the one who's building his called out ones upon himself. He knew that he would do it. That's why he was certain about it. And thus the outcome, the, the success of his mission is certain. Is certain. It's guaranteed. It's not faithful believers who build Christ's church. It's Christ himself who builds his church through faithful believers. Wherever his people are committed to honoring him, wherever his people are committed to glorifying him, wherever his people are committed to being obedient to him, committed to living entirely for his glory, for his kingdom, for his righteousness, the Lord builds his church through his people for his own glory. Thus, you know, this ministry, this ministry's lasted 60 years because we're committed to him. We're committed to obedience. 
We're committed to glorifying Jesus. We're committed to growing deeper in our understanding and our walk with him. And if the Lord is willing, and if we last another 60, it'll be because he is the one who continues to work through this ministry to build his church. The church has a supernatural foundation. It has a supernatural certainty. And third, the church has a supernatural intimacy. Intimacy with whom, you might ask? Well, with each other, right? I mean, we're sitting all in the same room. Uh, We work together. Paul likened the church to a body for a reason. You know, each, each part of the body was working in a coordinated effort with the other parts of the body. There's a degree of of teamwork there that's going on, and that requires intimacy. But what's necessary for all the parts of the body to work together in a coordinated way? A head. No head means a dead and lifeless body, right? And so thus Paul likens Christ to the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the head of his called out ones. So Jesus refers to his church in the possessive. In the possessive. It's my church, is what he says. It's his church. There's an intimacy there. It's not like, you know, a church. It's not a group of people who are just kind of randomly together. And he doesn't know them. And he doesn't really relate to them. He says, that is my church. His called out ones are his personal possession. That's why we're likened to a bride, the bride of Christ. Intimacy. It's about supernatural intimacy. That's why Paul instructed the elders at the church of Ephesus. He says, be careful. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. See, when we understand that it's his... When we understand that it's something that he considers to be his property, his possession, we want to take care of it. You know, if um, let's say that I were to, to take one of your cell phones, and I say, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to borrow it for, for a day, and I give it back to you scratched, what do you think of me? And you think, oh man, he doesn't take care of that stuff. I'm never loaning him anything again. It's a stewardship issue for a pastor and for the elders to take care of the church. We understand that it's his. We understand that he cares deeply for it. We understand that he cares so much for the church that he shed his blood to redeem it. As Christians, as people who have been called out of death and into life, we have this supernatural intimacy with Christ because we're a treasured possession for him. It's a holy, holy intimacy. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now marriage is described biblically as being a man and woman becoming one flesh. And the implication, one of the many implications there is intimacy, right? It implies that there's, there's an intimacy between a man and his wife then how much more intimate, in light of this verse, how much more intimate is becoming one in spirit with Christ? And out of this intimacy, out of this deep love and this deep care that he has for us, God has always identified himself with his people and he has always jealously guarded them as his own. 
This ministry hasn't lasted 60 years because we're not on the enemy's radar. This ministry has lasted 60 years despite being on the enemy's radar because the Lord has not only blessed us with the resources and whatnot, but he's also shielded us. He's protected us. He's seen us through rough times. That's the fruit of a supernatural intimacy with God. That brings us to the fourth thing that Jesus tells us about his church. The church has a supernatural foundation. The church has a supernatural certainty. The church has a supernatural intimacy. And fourth, the church has a supernatural invincibility. Now, we're not just talking about one church because somebody could torch this place and burn it to the ground. We're talking about the church overall, the universal church, all people, all the, the church uh, universally. Jesus said, the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The actual word that's used there is Hades, which sometimes gets translated as hell, but they have completely different connotations. Hell and Hades have different connotations. Hades was the Greek word for the underworld, where people went when they died, regardless of whether they were uh, an atheist or whether they were a believer. There was no distinction between the the, the religious and the atheist, uh, or who entered into blessedness and who entered into eternal uh, damnation. The term was just synonymous with death. Hades was just synonymous with death. And in light of that fact, I believe that the correct, uh, the correct interpretation and translation would be the gates of Hades rather than the gates of hell, as some Bibles translated. So what was Jesus saying? What did he mean when, when he's saying the gates of Hades or Orca, whatever, will not prevail against it. He meant that his church would be built, there's the certainty, and that nobody would stand against it, not even the greatest and last enemy would stand in his way and overcome his people, not even death. Not even death would overcome his mission to build his church. Death has no authority, death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. So in closing, what can I say to express the joy that I have to see this church celebrate 60 years of ministry? 60 years is a long time. I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm kind of at a loss for words. Words are, are probably just not enough. Uh, maybe I could say, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's an honor. It's such an honor to, to serve here. That's uh, about the best I've got, I guess. I don't know. It's an honor to serve here, and that's an honor that I, I absolutely don't take lightly. I'm, I'm sure that many of you would say the exact same thing, because I'm not the only one who serves here. We all work together. We all serve each other. That's our mission. That's our purpose. So thank you to those of you who have dedicated yourselves to selfish and sacrificial service throughout the years. It's clear that you don't take that honor of serving here lightly either. In fact, when we understand that the church isn't, it's not the room that we meet in, it's not the building that we meet in, it's not the land that we're, that we're on, but that we're the people of God who have been called out of death and into life. And when we understand that we are the personal property of Christ himself, it should give us more than just a sense of thankfulness for the past. It does give us a sense of thankfulness, right? Everybody agree? We have a sense of thankfulness for the past, but it also gives us more than that. It gives us a hope for the future. New Beginnings Church is a group of people who are devoted unapologetically 
unashamedly to Christ. And we always have been. That's what this church has always been about. That's what the mission has been since day one. And we recognize that all the scriptures point to Christ. And thus we are committed to the diligent study of scripture. The diligent study of Scripture. And we know that if, if we're being true to the Scriptures, to all the Scriptures, taking, you know, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, you know, being true completely to Scriptures, not just letting it say whatever we want it to say, you know, manipulating it, taking a verse here, a verse there, and, you know, piecing them together and letting it speak for us. No, we're letting the Scriptures speak to, speak for themselves. And we know that if we're being true to them, if we're committed to that truth, if we're committed to the application, of the scriptures, if we're committed to the instruction of the scriptures, we'll be doing something very important. We'll be abiding in Christ. And thus we'll be pointed to Jesus as well. The scriptures point to him, and we will be too if we're abiding in him. And as we continue to abide in him, let's remember some of his final words before he went to the cross. He told his disciples, John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to answer the question, has there ever been any supernatural activity at this church? Hmm, what do you mean by that? Yeah, the real answer is, yeah, that's the only reason we're here. That's the reason this church is still standing And so may we stay faithful to him, fruitful for him as we abide in him and as we delight in being obedient to him and bringing glory to him. After all, we are his personal possession. Christmas is just around the corner. It's about remembering that he came to make us his own to build his church, and thus we share in Peter's confession. We share in Peter's profession by faith. Christmas is about remembering that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, stepped out of eternity to be more than just a good teacher, to be more than just a prophet or a wise man. He stepped out of eternity for the sake of redeeming and calling out his people. Christmas is about understanding, about understanding that he became the, man, the son of man so that the children of men could become the children of God. Christmas is about remembering that by God's grace, we've been called out, to, out of death and into life. And Christmas is about remembering and knowing that through faith, he counts us as living stones that he's using to build his holy temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for being a gracious God, a God who knows us, knows his people, and provides and blesses and sustains. Lord, we thank you for 60 years here. We thank you, Lord, for the many lives that have been changed here, that have been transformed here by the diligent study of your word. We thank you, Lord, that this church bears fruit as we've abided in you. Even when the odds were stacked against this church, Lord, we've looked to you. We've relied on you, trusted in you. 
And so as we reflect on the past 60 years, Lord, we do have a hope, a supernatural hope for the future, knowing that if it's your will, we'll be here to celebrate 100 years. We'll be here to celebrate 120 years, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to be people who live by these truths, understanding, understanding that we have life in you, understanding that you've given us a place among your people, among your, your called out ones. And we thank you, Lord. Teach us not to take that calling lightly, but to live in a way that honors you because of it. We exist to glorify you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.